We are going to continue our study through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to pick up where Ron left off last week. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 9. And you are completely dependent upon your actual Bibles in your laps because the screens are down. Uh, So if you will grab a device, (laughs) that's right, that's right, or your phone. Uh, Grab a device, pick up your Bible, and turn with me to Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 9. We're going to read this together, and then we will pray, and we will jump right in. Nehemiah 2, 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, With its gates burned, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant And Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, a priceless gift to us. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to cause this story, this bit of history that took place nearly 2,500 years ago, I pray that you would cause it to come to life in our hearts and that you would apply it to our lives this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I I have a question for you, and I'm going to require brutal honesty. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. That might be too much, but we're just going to dive right into the deep end. This is going to take some real 
Humility. Okay, are you ready? When you do a home improvement project, how many times do you go to Home Depot? (laughs) Now, I, I know some of you just said, oh, no, I just go once. And the rest of you were honest. You thought to yourself and you said, oh, the last time I painted a room, I I went once to buy the paint because I thought that I had all the rollers at home. Then I realized, no, no, I didn't. I ran out of rollers. I got to go back again. Let me me confess something to you. When I get to trip number two to Home Depot, I think, that's okay. This This is just a mistake. This could happen to anyone. I didn't foresee this element of the project. But my friends... When I get to trip number five, I am confronted with the fall of mankind. The the book of Ecclesiastes is right in my face. Everything is vanity. Creation has been subjected to futility. Why, oh Lord, am I here again? Why didn't I take one more hour to think through this project, to to fully prepare, to to make a full inspection of what I would need so that I could just go to Home Depot one time, just once. You see, the way we prepare for something, it it reveals something about us, and we don't always want to see what it reveals about us. Uh, It could reveal how patient or impatient we are with a project. Uh, It could reveal how thorough or perhaps how not thorough we are when we begin a project. It could reveal a certain cocky sense that I can get it done without really looking at all the details first. That's what a normal project and how we prepare for it uh, tends to reveal about us. But when it comes to the work that God has given us, The the way that we prepare for that, it it reveals something much deeper about us. You you see, when God gives us a work to do, when when he has called us to something, the way we prepare for that is going to reveal either a deep awareness of our dependence upon God, or it's going to shine a light on an underlying self-sufficiency. That's what's going to happen when we are preparing for the work that God gives us. Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 is about preparation. Nehemiah has been given a very practical task. He's literally building a wall. But we spend two chapters not building a wall. There's two chapters of preparation. And the way that Nehemiah goes about preparing for the Lord's work, it, it has something to teach us this afternoon if we'll let it. It has something significant to teach us about how we approach the holy work the Lord has entrusted to us. The text gives us three main points this afternoon. The first point is the secret inspection. That's in verses 11 to 16. Point number two, a grace-empowered call to action in verses 17 and 18. And then three, the reality of enemies in verses 9 and 10, and again in verses 19 and 20. Let's give our attention to point number one, the secret inspection. 
Now, the first thing to notice about this, before your eyes go down to verses 11 and 12, the first thing I want you to notice is that this inspection is not Nehemiah's first step. We're in the middle. We're in chapter 2. We're in the middle of Nehemiah's preparation to do the work that God has given him to do. And to rightly appreciate the inspection of the wall, we have to reorient ourselves to what happened in chapter number 1. So very quickly... In chapter number one, Nehemiah receives a bad report from Jerusalem. The walls lie in ruins. The gates have been burned by fire, and this reflects poorly upon the Lord. And his heart is grieved, deeply grieved. In fact, we see in our text today in verse 12 that he viewed this as a God-given burden. The Lord had laid it upon his heart. So what does he do next? He's confronted with bad news. He has a God-given burden that he should be part of the solution. What does he do next? He spends four months praying and fasting with his friends. Then he waits. He waits for God to give him an opportunity to speak to the king about this. He doesn't charge ahead of the Lord. He, He waits. And then when that happens... And the king confirms, the king blesses this trip, this endeavor that Nehemiah is going to go on. And he has evidence that God is blessing the trip. Then he arrives, he travels a thousand miles, he arrives in Jerusalem, and then look at verse 11. Oh, verse 11 is a gift to us. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Okay, he he has a construction project to do practical project. He's been praying about this project for months. He's received the blessing of the king and the finances of the king to back up the project. So he gets to Jerusalem and the next morning he starts, no, no, he doesn't. He rests again for three days. Then he quietly completes a full inspection of the job. He quietly inspects the walls Friends, when we see a problem, if you're anything like me, we have a tendency to jump either right into action or right into discouragement. Have you ever experienced that? You get bad news, and your first knee-jerk response is, let me dig into the details and fix this. Or your first knee-jerk response is, oh my goodness, I am overwhelmed by this. I am discouraged You see, we can go wrong in two different ways. We can be pridefully self-sufficient. So what's going through our minds is, I'm enough to fix this problem. I hear the problem, and you know what? I've got this. You know, it's too bad I wasn't in Jerusalem for the past 80 years because I would have fixed this wall already. What those people need is me. Or we can be insecure. We can say, you know what? I'm, I'm not enough for this problem. I'm weak. I mean, I think I'm supposed to be enough to meet this problem, but I'm not. And so then we give way to shame, anxiety, discouragement, maybe even depression. Do you see how the root cause of both of those responses is the same? The root cause is the assumption that what is needed to solve the problem is my own strength and efforts and capacity and capability and gifting. That that's that's the key thing that I could solve this problem if I had the competency, if I had the strength, but the answer is me. Nehemiah's response is different. 
isn't it? You see, he demonstrates humility, a deep humility with regard to himself. Go back and look at the prayer in chapter 1. He, de- he demonstrates a deep awareness that he is not the answer to the problem. In fact, he confesses his sins. He says, I am part of the problem. I and my fathers have sinned, and that's why Jerusalem is in the state that it's in today. Deep humility about himself, but he demonstrates a massive confidence in his God. He's humble enough to pray and wait and rest, but he has faith enough to believe that God will act You see, there's a holy rhythm to Nehemiah's actions. There's a a pace to Nehemiah's actions in chapter 1 and 2. He's given a construction project to do, but he prays, he waits, he rests, and he inspects before he ever picks up a hammer. Let's just pause here for a moment. I suspect that for some of you, verse 11 and 12 is the main thing that you need from this text today. When was the last time that you took three days of purposeful rest? Purposeful rest. When when was the last time that you spent a night, a night quietly reviewing and inspecting and evaluating the burdens that God has laid on your heart? When was the last time you paused to do those things? You see, I suspect that most of us, many of us, with the the things God has given us to do in our lives, that we've jumped right past Nehemiah's steps one through three. And we're just frantically trying to solve the problem. We're frantically trying to jump into action. And we sense that we're drowning. We sense that we're not enough, but we can't give ourselves the permission to slow down and inspect the problem, to spend that time in prayer, to commune with your Father If that's you this afternoon, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear John 15, 5 read to you. And I hope, I hope this lands with relief for you and encouragement today. John 15, 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine and you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Whoever abides in Christ. What is the key thing that makes the difference between a life where your work is fruitful and where your work is completely wasted? Is it your competency? your abilities, your gifting, how hard you hustle? No. Those who abide in Christ bear fruit. What a gracious word. Those who abide, those who live with him, those who spend time communing with him, these are the ones who bear fruit in the kingdom. Honestly now, Are you abiding in Christ this afternoon? Is your work flowing out of the nourishment that you receive from communion with your God? Apart from Christ, nothing. That's what we can accomplish. Nehemiah's work 
and leadership in chapters 1 and 2, they, they flow out of communion with God, out of the deep conviction he's received that God himself is at work to rebuild the wall. That's where his energy comes from. But is that where our energy is coming from today, right now? Second, I want you to notice the inspection itself. Verses, so first thing is that the inspection was not the first step. It followed praying, waiting, resting. Secondly, look at the inspection itself. Verses 12 to 16 is the longest section of our text today, and it seems to be giving us two data points. First is a seemingly irrelevant list of construction details. You know, various gates, sections of the wall that Nehemiah inspected, the one place where there's so much rubble beside the wall that his horse couldn't even get through, so he had to dismount. Okay, these are things we don't know. I mean, most of us, maybe some of you do, most of us don't know the geography of the old wall of the city of Jerusalem. It's not the present-day wall, okay? So we're reading these details, and you know what? On a Thursday morning at 6 in the morning before the coffee is kicked in, this is the kind of passage that I'm likely to say, oh, interesting, and move on. Okay, but I think there's something, the second data, data point that Nehemiah gives us seems to be a little bit confusing. He did it in the middle of the night. He did it in secret. So there, there's a list of gates, construction details, and then there's also this confusing bit about, for some reason, deciding to do his, his construction inspection at night when no one can see him and not telling anyone about it. What does the Lord have for us in, in a text like this? Well, I actually, I think that if we read it carefully, what we see, what we're going to find is an extremely practical walking out of several key biblical wisdom categories. Let's look at the, this text, verses 12 through 16, with fresh eyes. The first thing that I notice is that Nehemiah is a wise leader. He's not coming to God's people with a half-baked idea. You know, if he rides into Jerusalem and says, surprise, I have a plan to rebuild the wall. And they're like, well, have you looked at it? And he's like, well, no, but I think it's going to go just fine. No, he's a good leader. He's done his homework. He's done the inspection. In Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 30, our Lord says this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. That's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is doing the homework. He's doing the inspection. Second, Nehemiah is acting like a man who knows that he has enemies. You see, in verses 9 and 10, we're introduced to the enemies, and we're going to spend some time with them in just a few minutes. We're going to get to know them a little bit better and orient ourselves towards these enemies. But Nehemiah is acting wise. He knows their enemies in the neighborhood, so he's careful and he's watchful. Some of God's people, we'll find out, are closely related with these enemies. They're spies in the land. And this helps to explain why Nehemiah had to do the inspection at night. He's a man who's aware that there's an enemy at the gate. Third, I'm about to step on some toes, including my own. 
Nehemiah is a man who knows how to hold his tongue. He knows when to speak and when to be silent. Look at the emphasis in verse 12. Then I rose in the night, and a few, I and a few men with me, and I, I told no one what my God had put into my heart. Look at verse 16. What is the emphasis? The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews. He didn't ride into town 30 minutes ago. He's been there for three days, but he hasn't shared this information yet because he knows how to wait for the right moment to speak. He's prayerful. He's quick to listen and observe and inspect, to gather information. This man is slow to speak. And finally, and what I think is the main emphasis of this aspect of our text today, Nehemiah is not afraid to look at the problem, to really look at it. Why why is the scripture telling us about this gate and that gate and that pile of rubble? You can see someone with Nehemiah writing it down, taking notes. Okay, we need to do this to the fish gate, and we need to do this to the pool of Siloam, and we need to clear the rubble over here. Okay, you can see someone writing it down. He's not afraid to look at the problem. He's not easily discouraged. You see, his months of prayer and fasting have given him a conviction that God is in the work, and it set him free to have a clear-eyed look at the problem, to face the problem head on. We can often be hesitant to look at the places in our own soul that need attention, the places in our church that need attention, fear of man, shame, apathy, pride, love for the things of this world, all of these things, they can cause us to avoid inspecting the walls or just to flat out deny that the walls have any holes. Hey, my walls are perfect. Thank you very much. Back up off me. My walls are great. You don't need to look at it too close. Please don't shine a light over here, but I'm doing good. Now, we have to be careful here. There are healthy and unhealthy ways to inspect a problem. We can, we can engage in unhealthy introspection that's motivated more by self-absorption or self-justification than it is by a desire to truly please the Lord. We can, on the other hand, there's a lot of people in this world, I don't know any of them, who are all too happy to tell you about the problem. I'm ready to inspect the problem. I can tell you, anyone who will listen, I'll tell you what the problem is. We can be vulnerable to a self-righteous, critical spirit about ourselves, about our church, about our family, about our spouse, always ready to point out what's wrong. But we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a healthy inspection that is needed that's encouraged by Scripture, an honest evaluation of ourselves and our church, an evaluation that's grounded in something, that's grounded in humility and faith. Christian, how is your soul doing this afternoon? Are the gates, are there any gates that have been burned with fire? Is there any rubble lying around in there that has never been cleared? sinful habit that you've been called to give up? Is there a good work that you know God's been calling you to step into and you've just been putting him off 
putting him off? Is there a spiritual construction project on your plate today? Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28 says this. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control. Is there a matter of self-control that God is gently speaking to you about this afternoon? Friends, you don't have to hide or ignore it or try to stir yourself up to fix it yourself in your own strength. Like Nehemiah, we can respond in humility and faith. Jesus died for your sins. If you believe in him, if you're united to Christ this afternoon, you're already loved, accepted, forgiven. You don't have to hide anymore. You can make a full, honest, open-eyed inspection of the walls of your heart. When was the last time you did that? Do you know the condition of the walls? When we inspect, we can confess our sins where appropriate and we can ask for God's powerful hand to be upon us to help us rebuild. So, Nehemiah, that's, this is the preparation. Nehemiah has fasted and prayed. He has waited on God. He has traveled a thousand miles. He has rested for three days. He has done a full inspection of the wall. And now, and only now, is he ready for a call to action. Now he is ready to appeal to God's people to get them to act. And that brings us to point number two, a grace-empowered call to action. Look at verses 17 and 18. Let's start with verse 17. Then I said to them, then, months of prayer and fasting, resting, waiting, investigating, then I spoke to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Do you notice something about this verse? He's using first-person plural pronouns. First person. He's saying we and us. But where was Nehemiah when the walls were broken down to begin with? He was not even born. Where was he? He, he was born in Susa. He hasn't been there with the walls. He, he bears no visible responsibility for the state that Jerusalem's in. He, he would have been perfectly justified in riding into town and saying, what have you done? Not saying we and us. And what if he had said, hey, I've been promoted the governor here. I'm in charge. You get to work. We're in trouble, but you get to work. That is not Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah is, is willing to identify himself with the plight of God's people. He's willing to say, I bear a share of responsibility for this problem, and I will work hard to be part of the solution. He's not here to cast blame on people or to guilt them into action. This is an act of grace in Nehemiah's life, okay? When Nehemiah was informed of this situation, a situation that was happening a thousand miles away, what's the first thing he did? He went to his knees and began confessing his own sin. Think about that for a second. You hear of a grievous action in a church a thousand miles away. 
Is your first thought, oh Lord, is this sin alive in me? This is what the gospel does. It humbles us and it unites us with God's people. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are adopted into a family and given a new identity. The beauty and power of being in a family is the unconditional love and belonging that comes with part of it, that you're in despite your foibles, despite the weird habits that you have, despite your failures, that you are in, you are accepted. When there's a weakness or a problem or a project to be done, the mature Christian feels a keen sense of responsibility. Is there a plank in my own eye? Have I somehow been a part of the problem? How can I grieve with those who are grieving? How can I rejoice with those who are rejoicing? How can I be a part of the solution? This, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ produces in us, a humble unity with God's people. Now look at verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Oh, this is, this is the best verse in this text. But if your eyes are open to it, this verse is like a big neon arrow just pointing, just pointing us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can God's hand of grace be upon us? How can God's power be at work in your life for anything other than judgment for your sins? Oh, it's only because Jesus went to the cross in your place and in my place for our sins so that this verse could be about us. Okay, what does Nehemiah appeal to? When he wants to call God's people to action, what does he appeal to? As a matter of fact, what could he possibly appeal to? Okay, the Israelites have failed for generations. Even, even the returned, those who have returned from exile have been there nearly 100 years, probably about 80 years, and they have not gotten the job done. Okay, so what could possibly help them get the task done? What will give them the strength and endurance they need to do the work in the face of fierce and dangerous enemies? But maybe even more important, what will enable them to defeat the apathy and indifference and compromise in their own hearts and fully dedicate themselves to the work of God? Nothing can do this apart from God's grace. Nothing can be the fuel for this kind of work apart from the powerful hand of the Lord. Christian, what work has God given you to do? today? Where are you looking for the strength to do it? Is your internal dialogue marked by the gospel of grace? Is your heart in tune with texts like Romans 8, 31 and 32? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are you walking day by day under the influence of passages like Ephesians 1, 15 through 23? Do you know the hope to which you've been called? Do you know that you have a glorious inheritance waiting for you? Do you know that his immeasurably great power is at work in you who believe? Because of Christ, when Nehemiah says that 
the good hand of the Lord was upon him. Every single person in this room who believes in the Lord Jesus today can say the same. The good hand of the Lord is upon you, but are you looking to it to do the work he's given you to do? Are you looking, are you riding on the fumes of your own strength and your own efforts? So often the case is that our internal dialogue is not marked by the gospel. It's marked by condemnation. It's marked by shame. It's marked by legalism. It's marked by perhaps even worse, self-sufficiency. Nehemiah's rallying cry to God's people was not effective because Nehemiah was such a dynamic, charismatic leader. It was powerful and effective because it was based on the power and grace of God. That's the power at work in us. Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, let us strengthen our hands for the work. Not because we're so gifted, because the powerful hand of God is upon us. And that brings us to our final point. Point number three, the reality of enemies. Verses 9 and 10 and 19 and 20. I'm sure you noticed that our text today begins and ends with the enemies of God, with a report that the enemies are displeased, they're upset, they're resisting the work of God that's going forward. In verse 10, we're introduced to Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant. And then a third enemy, Geshem, the Arab, in verse 19. Now, as an aside, one interesting thing, something I find interesting, all three of these guys, uh, we have evidence of them from extra-biblical sources that place them in and around Jerusalem from this time period. So we know a little bit more about the kingdoms that they ruled over uh, than you can find even just in the pages of Scripture. Sanballat is governor of Samaria, just to the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah is the name of a ruling family of the Ammonites, uh, located just east of the city. And Geshem, maybe the head of the most powerful group of the three, a league of Arabian tribes to the east and south that stretched almost all the way to Egypt. So what's the point? The point is that God's people are surrounded by enemies. They're surrounded, okay? And not just surrounded by enemies, but there are spies. The the enemies have spies in Jerusalem. So it finally comes to light in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 17 that Tobiah is actually the son-in-law of Shechaniah, one of the nobles in Judah. Okay, and it, it gets worse, okay? In chapter 13, 28, we learn that one of the priest's sons, one of the acting priests in Jerusalem, his son had married Sanballat's daughter. Okay, you remember the intermarriage crisis at the end of Ezra? This is the fruit of that crisis. Okay, so many of the nobles were in constant communication with Sanballat and Tobiah. We actually learn in chapter 6 that letters are going back and forth all the time and that they, they sympathize with the enemies of God's people. So this sheds a little bit more light on why Nehemiah needed to inspect the walls in the dark, in the middle of the night, because he couldn't trust the people around him. It also explained why Nehemiah's enemies seemed to be so well-informed of all of his actions. Now, what is the takeaway for us? 
anytime, nearly any time, a, a discrete text in Scripture opens and closes with the same idea, the author is trying to communicate something. That this is a literary take technique, and it doesn't take a ton of wisdom to see what's happening here. Nehemiah wants us to understand that the entire work that God had given him to do, the entire work from its inception in verse 9, okay, to completion is resisted and opposed by the enemies of God. The entire work. We're going to see we're going to see this come up in chapter 2, verse 10, again in chapter 2, two 19, again in chapter 4, verse 1, again in chapter 4, verse 7, again in chapter 6, verse 1. Then they're going to finish the wall, and then the enemies are going to change tactics, and they're going to try to subvert the work of God in other ways. Okay, so Sanballat and Tobiah, they're going to be with us for the rest of the study. The good hand of God was on Nehemiah, but he didn't remove the enemies. There was still opposition. You see, in God's providence, he causes his people to thrive despite opposition. His glory shines brighter when we walk through trial and resistance. And the takeaway for us is we do not have the luxury of living nonchalantly. We have to be wise and careful like Nehemiah. There are enemies at the gate. One of the great themes of the New Testament is that we must be on guard, alert, and ready for opposition. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, not seeking someone to have coffee with, seeking to destroy. We have to be wise and watchful like Nehemiah, courageous in the face of opposition. God set Nehemiah a huge task, a task of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. But his, Nehemiah's wisdom and his humility is seen in the steps that he took before he ever started the, to build he prayed, he fasted, he waited, he rested, he inspected. He demonstrates a profound dependence on God. How you prepare for the work matters. How have you prepared for the work that God has put on your plate in this season of your life? Has prayer and communion with your Lord created, created a deep conviction and clarity, and confidence that though you are weak, yet God is strong, and that you can continue on in the strength that your, your Lord provides. I, the worship team can come on up. I believe that there's an individual and a corporate application of this text today. Individually, if you are a Christian today, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible is crystal clear. It is absolutely clear that God has given you, specifically you, good work to do for his kingdom. You can look at Ephesians 2.10. God prepared good works in advance that you should walk in them. You could look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 through 16, where every person in the church is called to use their gifts to build up the church. You can look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Every single person has received a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. 
If you're a believer in Christ this afternoon, God has given you work to do, and He's equipped you for it. Nehemiah 1 and 2 are two whole chapters of preparation for the work. Christian, do not skip the preparation. Do not skip the preparation. Impatience with these parts of the process will lead to fruitless work later on. How is it that we bear fruit in the kingdom of God? We abide in Christ. Do not skip the preparation. In particular, the encouragement of this text this afternoon is to inspect your walls. When have you done that recently? What is the state of your soul spiritually? How are your walls looking? And if you're aware of holes and rubble, are you avoiding the work out of fear? Oh no, the power of God is at work in you. Lay your hand, strengthen your hands for the good work. Are you seeking first God's kingdom? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Are you even aware, honestly, walking in this afternoon, that there's good work to be done? It may be that by God's grace, you are primed and ready for the work. So, come back two weeks from now. The work starts in chapter 3. Foster Brereton is going to be bringing the word. Do not miss it. But it may be that like many of us, you need to go back to steps one through three. You need to build that conviction about what God has called you to do and access the power that he's given you to do it. Corporately, Christian, do you know that you're part of a glorious family? Do you know that when you become a Christian, you take on a corporate identity? Do you grieve when the church suffers and rejoice when the church is healthy and strong? When there are problems in the church, are you driven like Nehemiah to prayer and confession? Or are you quick to pass judgment, to distance yourself from the problem? How are the walls of our church looking right now? Where, where is there opportunity for improvement? Just like God has given each one of us individually a work to do, God has given the church a great work to do. And it's under two headings. The first heading, to edify and mature and care for God's people. And he has given you all gifts to that end. Edify, mature, and care for each other. The second great task, to bear witness to Christ in Pasadena and all the world. Two things, edify, mature, and care for each other. Bear witness to Christ in all the world. The elders of this church are prayerfully inspecting the walls would you join us? Would you join us? We need your perspective. We need your prayers. How are the walls of this church looking? Let's pray. Father, Nehemiah was incredibly humble about himself and his own strength, his own abilities. He knew he wasn't enough for the job. He prayed and he sought you and he didn't take steps forward until he was certain of the mighty hand of God upon him. Lord, 
May we not walk out of here loaded down with a bigger to-do list, but may we walk out of here on our tiptoes because we have just remembered again that the immeasurably great power that you exercised in Christ's resurrection is at work in us so we are capable of the work you've given us to do. Not in ourselves, but in your great power so that you receive all the glory. Would you stir us up, Father, to act like the church, to strengthen our hands for the good work. In Jesus' name, amen.